0: Well, I'm wearing a few more hats this morning than I was initially intending, so I invite you to turn along with me to Matthew chapter 6, and while you're going there, I'm going to give you a little bit of a road map for the next few weeks here at New Life. So the, the reason that I am playing double duty this morning is that Paul Emmer was going to be preaching this Sunday, but he just needed one more week of recovery after breaking his leg. The fact that he's even capable of preaching next week is a little bit crazy, but that man is determined. So... He was going to be preaching this week. It wasn't going to quite work, so him and I have switched. So I'm preaching today. Paul Emmer will be preaching here next week. The week after that, June 18th, we will be going down to one service, and that will head into the summer then. So starting on June 18th, we'll be down to one service, starting at 10 a.m. all throughout the summer. And then that following week, on June 25th, it is not only a Baptism Sunday but we will be starting a new series through the Book of Psalms. Now, obviously, we're not going for 150 weeks. So throughout the summer, we will be looking at just various psalms throughout the book. And we'll invite you, uh, along with us, to aim to read through the entire Book of Psalms over the summer. So we're going to have a little booklet ready uh, that will give you morning and evening readings so that over the course of, I think, 75 days, where's Jana, 75 days, is it? You will read through all 150 psalms. So those are just some of the things happening over the next few weeks. But like I said this morning, we'll be in Matthew chapter 6. Kind of had a a chance to do a bit of a one-off, just having finished 2 Peter, and now kind of just a few weeks until our summer series. So I had a chance to pick to preach whatever I wanted, which is always a fun time. And so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 15 this morning. Let me read those for us. Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So I usually like to start with, you know, some story or anecdote from my own life or from church history to kind of get us thinking about one of the main points that we're going to see in the text. But I'm taking a bet this morning that I can actually use all of you to kind of make my point today. So by a show of hands, how many of you are satisfied with your prayer lives? point made. We actually had one person raise their hand in first service. I was kind of impressed, Um, but neither am I. And so with an opportunity to take a week and just study anything and then to come and talk about it for a while, I decided to study the Lord's Prayer for myself to really dig in um, and hopefully, by God's grace, if I have interpreted this correctly, to not only spur on my own prayer life, but also to help shape yours. And so before Jesus actually gets into the prayer, he, he gives us a couple of comments on how we should approach prayer. So I just want to read those again for us this morning. That's in verses 5 to 8. So he says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And so the first thing I want us to see this morning is how Jesus starts. He says, and when you pray. Not if, when. Jesus assumes that his disciples will be praying people. There's a quote that's been attributed to the reformer Martin Luther. We're not totally sure he said it, but, but we'll just go with it. The quote is, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. And so for, for some here this morning, we're like two minutes in and you are getting the application that you need today, which is that you ought to be praying. It is the oxygen of the Christian life, And it is through prayer that we will see much of our progress towards Christ-likeness. So Jesus assumes that we will be a praying people as Christians. But Jesus is not just interested in us praying, right? He's not just wanting us to mindlessly kind of toss thoughts up towards God. He is interested in us praying rightly. And so he gives us two lessons on how we should approach God in prayer. And so the first of these is that we must pray with a right motivation. These instructions on prayer that he gives are situated in a set of three regular religious practices that he's commending and talking about. So first, at the start of chapter 6, it's giving to the needy, and then he talks about prayer, and then he talks about fasting. And with all three of these, they come with the same promise. Jesus says, do these things in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And so with all three, Jesus is telling us to not simply look like Christians in public in order to earn praise and the admiration of people, but rather to practice these things in order to please God, who is the giver of all good gifts. But prayer kind of sticks out among these three because, you know, it's pretty easy to give to the poor secretly and it's pretty easy to fast secretly. But don't we regularly make a practice of praying in public? Minutes ago, Howard was praying from the stage. Was he disobeying Jesus? Was he sinning by praying from the stage? Well, I don't think so. We need to let the rest of the Bible inform how we read what Jesus is saying. Throughout the New Testament, we see lots of public prayer. Paul writes prayers directly into his letters. In the book of Acts, we see the early church gathering for prayer meetings to pray about various things. And even Jesus himself prayed publicly throughout the Gospels. So with these examples in mind, it's clear that that Jesus is not just outright banning public prayer. Rather, he is banning prayer that has a selfish motivation of appearing holy or pious to others. To make this super practical, it it might just be worth saying, you know, a a Christian who is more apt to pray in public, say at, at a, you know, prayer meeting or with friends, rather than in private in their regular daily rhythms, that person should really examine their motivation because our public prayer life, the ones that we do with others, should flow out of our own private prayers. But more than that, even if we are a people who pray privately and in public, we still need to be checking our motivations, checking ourselves when we pray in public. I'm very guilty of this one. are, Are we trying to sound smart and spiritual as we pray to those around us? I mean, you know, someone else at the prayer meeting is praying and you're already starting to like Think through the first few sentences so you can really start it off with a bang, right? Uh, are, we, are we praying, but actually just trying to preach to the people around us who we're praying for, right? We, we've all had this happen. A, a friend asks someone to pray for wisdom. You know, they've been offered a new job and they want wisdom to know take it or keep theirs. And the person prays, Oh Lord, help them to make the right decision and accept this new job. Like, well, no, you're not praying to the Lord, you're preaching to this person. Or, and I think this is the most egregious and probably the most common, are we using prayer as a way to gossip about other people in a way that seems a little bit holy? Jesus is clear that for what we are doing to truly be considered prayer, it must, be voti- must not be motivated by the hope of personal glory, but rather by the reward gained by drawing near to our Father. But more than simply draw, drawing near, we must draw near understanding the Father that we are drawing near to. So that's the second thing I think he's saying in verses 7 and 8 is that we must pray with a right understanding of God. So we have to ask the question again, what is he actually saying we shouldn't do? What is he actually banning? Because we might think, oh, well, well, he's saying that we should not pray long prayers. Well, that's not true. Luke 6, 12, this is about Jesus. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Okay, so he's not banning long prayers. Is he banning praying for the same thing more than once, maybe? Well, definitely not that either. In Luke 18, he tells a parable, and it says specifically that he told the parable to the effect that the disciples ought to always pray and never give up. And besides that, Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane, we read, So, leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the the third time, saying the same words again. So Jesus isn't banning long prayers. He's not banning praying for the same thing multiple times. So I think what he is banning is approaching God as though you need to earn a hearing by your works. There's a really good example of this in in, I think like one of the coolest stories in the Old Testament. Uh, In 1 Kings chapter 18, in the showdown between the prophet Elijah and the prophets of Baal. It's a Sunday school story. A lot of you probably know it. I just want to read it this morning, so we'll see the difference between praying to a God where you need to earn your hearing and praying to the God of the Bible. So starting at verse 25. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, for he is on a journey. Or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their customs with swords and lances, until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. We'll jump down to verse 36. In the meantime, Elijah gets people to literally cover the altar that he has built in water to make it really hard to burn. And then we read, And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell, and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God, the Lord, He is God. These prophets of this false god are trying to earn their audience. They're, they are shrieking for hours and hours. They're at the point of cutting themselves just to try to get their god to listen. But Elijah, after a lot of theatrics, <laughs> dunk in the altar in water, so, so there's no way that a human could light this thing on fire anymore, offers a simple prayer, and the true god answers. We, we see that our god is not like Baal or any other pagan god who needs to be enticed into listening to us. He simply hears the prayers of Christians. So we need not repeat ourselves over and over as if he is more likely to listen just because we've said it a lot. I think too, with the same statement, Jesus is also banning praying without properly trusting the faithfulness of our God. In James chapter one, James says it this way. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask a God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So, so this connection might be a little hard to see, right? So, so Jesus is saying that we shouldn't empty, heap up empty phrases, and I'm saying that what he's actually saying is we need to come to God trusting him. Those don't sound like the same thing, so let me show you why I think this is happening. So we're not to heap up empty phrases because our Father in heaven knows what we need before we ask. That's the reason Jesus gives. And so one of the the motivations for heaping up empty phrases is just repeatedly asking the same thing because deep down we don't believe that God has heard us. Or we believe that if we just ask him enough times that maybe he'll finally answer Or, I think worse than both of those, we think we have to ask in the right way. Almost like magic words. That if we can just shape this prayer request just right, then God will listen. And Jesus is saying we ought not pray in these ways. If we do so, it shows that we don't understand the God who we are praying to. Jesus also wants us to see that prayer is not about informing God about what's going on. I mean, he knows. He knows far better than we do. And it's also not about asking him enough to convince him to behave in a certain way. Besides, I mean, the Bible is very clear. God doesn't change his mind. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? And so we don't come to prayer bargaining with God, right? Trying to offer that that we will do something. If in return, he'll just answer this prayer, because when we do that, we're, we're betraying a lack of trust. We're, we're showing that we don't actually trust God to act in goodness and in wisdom towards his people. And so we come and we ask, but ultimately we trust that he knows all things and that he will do what is best. Therefore, to go back to the exact words Jesus was saying, we don't need to just hit God with a barrage of words. We, we can simply ask him and believe that he has heard and will act rightly. So before turning to teach us directly about what to pray for, Jesus gives us two requirements for how we pray, with the right motivation and with a right understanding of God. Now, as we jump into the Lord's Prayer, it's worth noting that these things we're going to look at, this is not an exhaustive list, right? Other places in Scripture offer us a little more about what we should pray for, maybe a comment here or there. This is a lot of it, though. So while we should let the whole Bible shape how we pray, this morning we're going to be focused primarily on the Lord's Prayer. So don't hear me saying these are the only things that you can pray for. So we will read the Lord's Prayer. We'll see what Jesus says should be the content of our prayer, starting in verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So right away we have to see that Jesus is offering them, he says to pray like this or or in this way. So he's not saying, just woodenly repeat these words, and you will have met all the requirements of prayer. He's giving us, and his disciples then, he's giving them and us a a model or a pattern. right? He's showing us what our priorities should be in prayer. So he gives us six petitions, three of them for God's glory, and three of them for our good. And this makes a lot of sense, because if you asked me this morning, why did God create the universe? Why did creation happen? I would say that the clear testimony of Scripture is that God created the universe first for his glory and secondly for the good of his people. And so the petitions that Jesus give us have us joining in prayer with God's mission, first for his glory and then second for our good. And so we'll work through this prayer from start to finish. But we've got to stop pretty quickly because the very first word that Jesus uses should catch us. It doesn't because we've heard this a lot, but he begins with the word, our, not my, our. And so right at the start, Jesus is framing prayer in a way that doesn't allow us to be totally individualistic. Now I say this a lot, and quite honestly, as long as you hear me preaching from this pulpit, you're gonna keep hearing me rail against this. Our world wants us to just be individuals. The the mantras of our age are, be whoever you wanna be, follow your heart, live your truth, the Bible does not understand that way of thinking. It is not how scripture tells us to think of ourselves as Christians. The Bible calls Christians to identify ourselves as part of the family of God, as part of the church. Absolutely still individuals, but individuals who are dependent on and accountable to one another. That's why we practice church membership. I mean, we have a list of of 225 of you who have said, This is my church. These are the others who I want to be dependent on and accountable to. Which, if that's a little plug, for those of you who aren't members, we'd love for you to be. It's your way of saying, these are my people. This is my my church. These are the hour when I come to God in prayer. And so prayer should be a time for us to acknowledge that God is our Father. And we're going to talk about Father, but, but it's the focus on our Father meaning that we have brothers and sisters. Practically, then, our prayer should not be utterly self-focused, but we should be praying with our church and other believers in mind, praising God for his work in those around us, not just in our own lives, praying for them, carrying their requests and needs before the Lord. And so with his very first word, Jesus reminds us that prayer should be corporately minded even when we are praying privately. And the second word, he tells us to pray to God as our father. So we need to understand two theological categories here. Those are the categories of transcendence and imminence. And so both of those are, are big words, essentially, for how we describe who God is. So we believe that God is transcendent, meaning that he is completely separate from us. He is far above us, that he is holy and great and glorious. Or, I mean, to really simplify it, we believe that God is utterly massive to the point where we really can't comprehend him rightly. But we also believe, and this is what sets Christianity apart from so many religions, we believe in a God who is not simply transcendent, but is also imminent. That he is close. That he invites us into relationship with him. And that's what the word father does. It shows us his imminence. It would have been entirely acceptable for God to demand that we address him as sovereign Lord, or master, or, or great God of heaven, right? Any title of absolute transcendence He could have said, use this and nothing else. But to Christians, he offers the privilege to approach him as father. And right, this is a privilege for Christians. This isn't simply for anyone. The Bible is clear that God is only father in this way to those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And so this intimate familial access to God is only for those who have repented. The author of Hebrews, I think, says this in a really beautiful way. In Hebrews chapter 10, this is what he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So for those who have fled to Christ to forgiveness, we have the beautiful privilege of coming to God as our father. And so as father, we can be confident that he knows us intimately, that that he loves us, right? These aren't just words written on a page, but that that God feels love for his children, that, that he will hear us, that he delights in doing us good as a father delights in doing good for his children, and that he is near to us. Really, this is all of the things that an earthly father ought to be, but God is this perfectly. He is the perfect picture of a caring and loving father. But as we've said, he is not simply father. He is our father in heaven. And so Jesus will not let us lose sight of God's transcendence. This, this imminence, this closeness with God, is really the great focus of our modern Western Christianity. I really believe that we have lost a sense of awe and reverence before God because, rightly, we have talked a lot about having a personal relationship with God, but in that, we've lost this reality that, that God is something very different from what we know. That God is absolutely holy. He is absolutely different from us. He, he is absolutely above us infinitely in every conceivable way. Like, like we have no right. We, we should not be able to come to him. It is only by grace that he lets us. And so here, again, what the author of Hebrews has to say say about what right worship is. And worship is, or prayer, is an act of worship. So the author of Hebrews says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship. And he describes that as worship with reverence and awe. And so we shouldn't think of prayer as just talking to God like a friend. That's part of the picture, but it's not enough. Because there are ways that I speak to my friends that would be wildly inappropriate to speak to God. I I don't approach my friends with awe and reverence. Why would we do that? So, So there's a difference there. He's not simply friend, but I also approach God with far more confidence and familiarity than I would a king. And so Jesus is giving us an approach to God as our Father in heaven. Therefore, we must find the balance between a loving and intimate relationship of trust and security and a deeply reverential and respectful approach. We come before him as we are, but we never lose sight of who he is. And so we come to him as our father in heaven. And then, as I said, Jesus gives us six things to pray for. And so the first of these, is we would pray, Hallowed be your name, or to maybe un-King Jamesify that language a little bit. Let your name be treated as holy. When the Bible talks about the name of the Lord, it doesn't mean his name, like a collection of syllables, right? Like just just uttering the name of God. God's name represents him. It's his attributes. When it talks about the name of God, it's talking about God himself. It's who he is. So ultimately, this is a prayer that God would be honored as holy in the world. This very first petition that Jesus tells us to pray has nothing to do with us. It is focused on God getting the glory that he rightly deserves. But this prayer should start with us. Because Christians desire to live for the glory of God, but none of us do this perfectly. And so as we come in prayer, it's Father in heaven, help me to live in such a way that you get the glory you deserve. But then it should extend out to the many ways in which we see our friends, our family, other Christians, the world dishonoring the name of our God. Now, now we could talk for hours about all the implications of that, all the different ways in which this happens, but the most obvious one, the, the thing that we should be praying for, I think the most, is that people would repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus. That is the only way that people go from dishonoring God to honoring him. It's when they realize that there is salvation in no one else, and they come to him for mercy. They come to be adopted into his family through the sacrificial atonement of Jesus Christ. And so that's the first petition, that God would be rightly treated as holy and that he would get the glory that he deserves in the world. And the next two petitions are closely tied together with that one as well. So Jesus tells us to pray, your kingdom come. Now we need to do a little bit of theology work here again to understand it, because there is a sense in which the kingdom has already come. We, we see that being proclaimed in the Gospels. John the Baptist says, repent and be baptized for your sins, for the kingdom is at hand. Jesus says the same thing, that the kingdom of God is breaking in during Jesus' earthly life. And right now, Jesus is reigning as the king of the universe in heaven. So the kingdom is here, but it's not yet fully here. And so we talk about this tension in theology, and we see this with a lot of things in scripture, as the tension of already, not yet. Some of God's promises have been fulfilled partially, but we await for their total fulfillment when Christ returns. And so the kingdom is here in part. In fact, we see that this morning, right? So so all of us here who are Christians, who have put our faith in Christ, we gather as representatives of the kingdom. Paul calls us Christ's ambassadors. And, And so what happens when we gather on a Sunday morning is that we are putting together an embassy. That's what we are doing. We are gathering here as an embassy of the kingdom of heaven. We are God's representatives here on earth. And it's not the building, because the church is God's people gathered. So it's uniquely in these moments that the kingdom is here, that we are worshiping on kingdom soil as Christ's ambassadors. And these embassies are set up all around the world right now, little outposts of the kingdom in the midst of a broken world. So there is an already element to the kingdom but we should be praying for the future day when the kingdom comes in its fullness, when, when Christ returns and reigns over a new heaven and a new earth. We've, we've talked about this a little bit over the last few weeks, too, at the end of 2 Peter. So, so there is this bit of tension, right, because we talked about the fact that God waits, that he is patient so that more people would come to faith in him. And so there is this tension of, of patiently trusting God's waiting, but also Jesus is clear. We ought to pray that the kingdom would Come, And so we trust God both in patience and in praying that that he would bring it about, that, that Christ would return and the kingdom would come fully. And then Jesus also teaches us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a simple petition. We want God's word to be obeyed. As it is in heaven, meaning perfectly. We pray that God's declared will would be obeyed in all the earth. And again, I think this prayer ought to start with ourselves, being aware of the ways in which we fail to do so and asking that the Lord would strengthen us, would convict us so that our lives first would be more conformed to his will. But from there, there are a lot of other things to pray for. We, we ought to pray that, that our governments would, would seek to see the will of God obeyed. We, we pray that laws would be put in place to end the slaughter of unborn children or to protect the institution of marriage, or to guard children from the dangers of ideologies like transgenderism. We we pray that governments would establish and defend religious freedom everywhere in the world. We pray that our governments would do justice, that they would show no partiality based on age or skin color or language group or income or any other factor. In short, we pray for a just government that protects all who are made in God's image, rightly using the authority that Scripture teaches that God has given them. But we also ought to pray that God's will would be done by individuals. And again, we could list a million things, a million ways in which God's will is disobeyed. And so at the highest level, we pray for salvation, because that is the way that people come to conformity with God's declared will. Now, it's worth noting, this petition, and really, I think these first three, they give us a right God-centered vision of prayer. With, these, with this petition, we need to let it inform the rest of how we pray. Everything else that we bring to God, we bring ultimately praying that his will would be done. Which means when we're praying for the wrong things, we are, in essence, asking him to ignore us and do what is actually best. We trust him. We trust his sovereign will. And so with these first three petitions, the eye is on God's glory that he would be honored rightly, that Christ would return and establish his kingdom, and that God would be obeyed in all the earth. And only after that emphasis has been established, the order is important, then Jesus turns to our needs. And he teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And Jesus simply invites us to ask God for what we need. I think Jesus is using the word bread here really to stand in for all that we need day to day whether that is food or money or health or relational repair, whatever that might be. In short, this is the place in which Jesus tells us to come to God with our requests. In doing so, we acknowledge that we need God. The things that we ask for are the things that we acknowledge we need help for. Or to turn this around, I I wish that I remember where I heard this quote. It like cut me to the heart the first time I heard it. Um, To turn that quote around a little bit, the things that we don't pray about are the things that we are acting like we can do apart from God. So God wants us to come near daily, to ask of him those things that we need to live, to survive, to do daily life. But again, our daily bread. So also the needs of those around us, bringing the requests of our brothers and sisters, our friends and family before the Lord in prayer. The word daily is also key. Jesus is wanting us to establish a habit of daily dependence on God, not asking for our yearly bread or our monthly bread or even our weekly bread, but he's rather teaching us to come day by day to admit our need before God. You know, we're really spoiled in the modern West. I mean, really, most of us in this room are not too concerned about where our next meal is going to come from. We're we're pretty sure of that. And so we lose sight of of what this means. He's telling us every day, to wake up acknowledging and asking that God would provide. Because he's the one doing it. Even if it it seems like that's not the case, even if you feel like you're the one working the job, he provided the job, I mean, God is the one providing. And he wants us to build up daily dependence even in the midst of our affluent culture. Finally, we need to realize that this is not a greedy request that he's bringing. You know, we all love James 4, 2. Where, where James says, you have not because you ask not, or you do not have because you do not ask. But we tend to forget what James says immediately after that in James 4.3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so we should be checking our motivations, right? Think back to that first petition. All of this prayer it is shaped by the reality that we want God's name to be treated as holy. And so are my prayers aimed at that? Are my prayers aimed at God being given the glory, even as I ask for my needs? Because they should be. But one of the most beautiful ways that that happens and that God receives that glory is when he meets a need through prayer and we can praise him for it and we can give testimony to one another about what God has done. And so I think to to put a nice bow on this prayer, I think Paul just says it perfectly in Philippians chapter 4. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then Jesus teaches us to pray and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So we'll bring in verses 14 and 15 here because they're kind of saying the same thing. And let's deal with the hard part before we talk about exactly what Jesus is saying we need to pray for. Is Jesus saying that if we do not forgive others, that we will not be forgiven by God? And the answer is kind of, but but not in the way that we immediately think. Jesus told a parable in Matthew 18 that I think helps us to understand this a little bit better. I just want to read the whole thing for us. Matthew 18, starting at verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So what Jesus is saying is that Christians forgive. Not perfectly, and definitely not easily all the time, but, but the heart's desire of a Christian is to forgive because we have been forgiven by God. And so we see and understand the, the difference in the debt that is owed between how much we have sinned against God and how much an individual might sin against us, and we forgive. Jesus' point in the parable and in this petition is that if someone calls themselves a Christian but willingly withholds forgiveness— They're evidencing that they don't understand the forgiveness that has been given to them. They don't understand the gospel. So that, I think, is how our forgiveness of others and God's forgiveness of us are linked. But now let's deal with this request. And so I just want to ask, Christian, do you have a practice of confessing your sins to God? And I mean like, like daily, taking time to reflect on the previous day and acknowledging specific moments, actions, and attitudes that offended his law, that that disobeyed his word. You know, if I can speak to this personally, I've made a practice of this only recently, probably in the last five or six months, and it has been a huge blessing for me. I mean, first of all, it has been really eye-opening. You know, there are things that that when I'm reflecting on the previous day, in the moment, I justified myself, and I convinced myself it wasn't sin, and as I sit there the next morning, I'm going, nope. That, that was sin, and I need to repent from that. I need to confess that before the Lord. So I've, in a lot of ways, seen the depth of my own sinfulness in a new way. But, but for that reason, it's also been really sanctifying, because as I'm taking these times to, to reflect and to ask that the Lord would show me my sin from the previous day, he's bringing to mind blind spots that I may never have seen if I hadn't taken this time. And so there are things coming up, and I'm going, I hadn't even occurred to me that that was sin, but now I actually can see that and I can battle against it and the Lord is using it to make me more like Christ. But on top of both of those things, it's also been a deeply worshipful thing for me because as I have looked at my own life intentionally and seen how much I actually sin, it's made me worship Christ all the more for the debt that he has paid for me. And so I fear that we've lost this practice in the North American church. So I want you to see this morning actually how necessary it is to our prayer lives. Jesus gave us six petitions and one of those six is confession of sin and asking for forgiveness. And finally, we'll cover this one briefly. He teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I think this is really just the logical implication of the last request. As we seek for and receive forgiveness of our past sins, we then ask that the Lord would strengthen our resolve in our battle with future sins. Once again, we acknowledge our need for God, but this time it is our clear spiritual weakness that we acknowledge as we seek to honor him with our lives. So that's the Lord's Prayer. In short, there's a lot more, (laughs) but we'll leave it there for this morning. I do just want to make one final observation as we close. Something I saw this week that... um, I think we need to realize as we pray this prayer. And that's the reality that with every petition of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is teaching us to ask God to do things that he has already promised to do. So he teaches us to pray, hallowed be your name. Well, that's gonna happen. Philippians 2, 9 to 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. It's going to happen, but he's telling us to pray for it. He teaches us to pray, your kingdom come. I mean, that's assured as well. Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. The day is coming, but he teaches us to pray for it teaches us to pray, your will be done. While Psalm 115, verse 3 tells us, our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. No one can resist his will. God does what he wants when he wants. Jesus teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. But then just a few verses later in Matthew 6, this is what he says. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither soar nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these." But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It's a promise. He is going to give us our daily bread, and he teaches us to pray for it. And forgive us our trespasses, First John 1, 9. He's promised he will if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In First Corinthians, we see no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And so with every request, he's telling us just to ask God for what God has already promised to do. And we know, and again, Paul writes so that we would know why it is that God will keep his promises. 2 Corinthians 1. For all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And so, brothers and sisters, as we learn to pray like Jesus taught us, we can be confident that our Father will hear and answer. Not because we're great, not not because we're worthy, not even because we know how to ask for the right things, because we don't, but because in Christ, God has shown us that he will keep every promise that he has made. And more than that, Christ has purchased all of God's promises for us. And so we come to him in prayer and we ask him to keep the promises that he has made. So prayer, maybe above any other purpose it has, is a beautiful time to worship and commune with our faithful father, drawing near confidently and gratefully because of the work of Jesus Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit to the glory of the triune God so that his name would be hallowed. Let us not abandon or misuse this privilege that we have been given. Let's pray. And so, Father, as we have been reminded today how it is that that your son taught us to pray, these things that he gave us, these these emphases, these focuses that he pointed us to, Lord, we just ask that you would use these to reshape how we pray, that, that you would use these to form in us desires for the things that you want. That above all else, every prayer that we utter, everything that we ask you for would be motivated not, not by our selfishness, not by a desire for our own gain or our own advancement, but would be motivated by a desire for your glory, that your name would be hallowed here in this world. So Lord, transform our hearts that that would be our desire. And by your spirit, continue to teach us how to pray as we ought to. Amen.